I'm Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, right now, we're going through a series through the books of Samuel. So we went through 1 Samuel. Now we're going through 2 Samuel. We're about halfway through. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and go to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 16 today, so we're pretty far. We're going to get there probably at the beginning of the new year. We're going to finish 2 Samuel 16. And we're going to be going through the entire chapter, all 23 verses. Uh, when you get there, um, I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into it. We'll ask God's blessing for this time and his help. Uh, as we've been doing, we haven't read the whole thing in the on the front end. What we're going to do is we're going to read it as we go along. We'll let it kind of unfold for us. Second Samuel 16. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon, God, and there's so many things going on in our lives, so many things we're thinking about, and whether or not we've been close to you this week, whether or not we've been spending time with you, thinking about you, sitting uh, and reading your word, praying, God, whether we've been doing that or not, God, I pray that during this time, as we open up the scripture, as we seek to learn more about you and to seek you, God, I pray that you would help us to be attentive and focused on you. God, I pray that you would help us, God, to put aside distractions, God, and to really at least give this time, God, to you. I pray that you give us an awareness of your presence with us um, and a desire to know you more. God, we pray that Christ will be honored, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to open up our eyes, open up our ears, most importantly, open up our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever discovered that you had enemies? Maybe you're going to a sporting event and you were wearing the jersey of your favorite player on your favorite team and you were just having a grand old time, smiling, laughing, enjoying the nice weather and then you sat down in your seat and it was in a section filled with people who were rooting for the other team. Or maybe your kid had a conflict with another kid at school and then suddenly you found yourself at odds with a set of angry parents. Or for some of you, I know that this will hit home a little bit. Maybe you moved here from a different state, let's say California, and you're all happy about it. Sunshine, golden state, and you told some people, your neighbors, maybe someone at the store, hey, I just moved here from the great state of California. And they looked at you like... They were not thrilled by that information. I had to learn the hard way that not everyone thought it was super great that I was from California. Um, it's all good, though. I talk about him every once in a while because I went to the seminary he led. But John MacArthur is a man who has one or two enemies in this world, maybe more. There are people who don't like him for all sorts of reasons. They don't like his theology. They don't like the convictions and the strong stands that he takes. They don't like his tone and the way that he comes across sometimes. And that comes with the territory. Okay, he's a public figure. He's pretty big, I would say. He's on the radio. He's on the Internet. He gets that. But I've heard him share one time about this thing that happened in his past years ago that really shook him. Even to this day, and he's like in his mid-80s now, but he still calls that Tuesday Black Tuesday. What happened was he went uh, to church like he always did during the week. He went to work, and he went to his Tuesday staff meeting in the morning or whatever, 
And he was there with the staff, with the pastors that he worked with, that he served with. And he said something innocuous, even friendly. He, I think he said something like, you know, I'm really grateful that even though ministry is so busy, that I get to serve and do church with my friends. And then he said, one of the other pastors said, John, if you think we're your friends, then you have another thing coming. And a few of the pastors started to air all these grievances that they had with him. All these things that they thought were bad about him, why they thought that he wasn't fit to be the leader of the staff. They attacked his character. They started attacking him personally. And they basically tried to get rid of him. And in doing so, tried to split the church, essentially. They wanted to kind of go their own way and lead something else. Now, you have to understand, this was way back in the day. This was uh, in the early, like, first decade of his ministry. This was in, like, the 70s, maybe 1980. He's been there 50 years now. Okay, now no one can kick him out. Um, but back then, he was pretty fresh. I mean, when I was thinking about it, doing the math a little bit, he was around my age, like, mid to late 30s. He had been in the church for maybe, like, eight or nine years and it was around this time uh, that Grace started getting big, that John MacArthur started getting big. He had just been this pastor of this local church, small church, but people had started coming. The church had started doubling in size every two years. He started getting on the radio. People started coming to hear John MacArthur. And that's why the problems started to form. Because these pastors who had served with him kind of on this kind of equal footing, they started seeing that everyone was coming to church to hear John MacArthur. Everyone was talking about Pastor John this, Pastor John that. Uh, they, they were disappointed when other pastors were filling the pulpit. The, they saw that they were being, or they felt that they were being minimized, that John was getting too much attention, that they should have more say. And you can understand that. MacArthur didn't do anything to them, but from their point of view, it really felt like it. So in frustration and pretty much jealousy, they just let it all out at the staff meeting. Now, spoiler alert, John MacArthur survived that coup. He's still there. And those guys aren't. Who knows where those guys are? Four decades later, though, MacArthur still points to that incident, Black Tuesday, as one of the hardest things that he has ever gone through in ministry. Maybe the hardest thing. Now, I bring this up. As a warning to Eric and James and Ben and Greg, don't try me, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I bring this up because it highlights a simple truth. Okay, something we all know too well, that few problems in life feel worse than people problems, right? Like injuries and illnesses can be terrible. They can wreck our bodies, Work can be stressful. School can just make our minds feel like they're melting. And yet it's relational difficulties. It's conflict, ongoing conflict with someone in your life. It's betrayal. It's mischaracterizations. It's criticism. It's gossip about you. It's these things that hurt not just our bodies and our minds, but really our hearts. These are the things that we carry with us. These are the scars that don't fade that easily. Have you ever had a Black Tuesday of your own? And I think a lot of us, if you really just thought about it for a second, of course you do. You have multiple Black Tuesdays. You can think about, you can pinpoint that one argument that ended that friendship, the beginning of the end. For some of you, uh, you remember the day that that one person who was a thorn in your side, you remember when they got hired and moved into the cubicle right next to you. 
The day someone you trusted turned out to be completely fake, that someone you thought was a friend turned out to be an enemy, that's a common occurrence. All of us have certain people problems that weigh heavily upon us. And even if you feel like you're flying high right now, that you're doing good, just look back in your past. Think about your old church. Think about that one time that that thing happened with that one cousin. Now, we're dropping right into the middle of 2 Samuel. The story has been going on for a little while. Just as a quick recap, the Lord God anointed David. Do you remember this? Right, God had chosen, or I guess he had allowed Saul to be king of Israel, the first king of Israel, but God had rejected him. And God had sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David to be the new king, the true king, the king after God's own heart. But Saul, the incumbent, the people's choice, wasn't going to relinquish his crown easily. In fact, what he did was he ruthlessly hunted David. He tried to kill him, even drove him out of the promised land, away from family and friends and home, into Philistine territory. David had a really stressful life, a very difficult time with people. But then at the beginning of 2 Samuel, with Saul out of the picture, David ascended to the throne, and things were going great until... David saw this woman bathing from his high-up rooftop palace, and he wanted her for himself. He committed adultery with her. He had her husband, one of his most loyal servants, killed to protect his reputation, I guess, to hide his iniquity. And he might have gotten away with it, except you can't hide from God. And God said that for his sin... And that's what it was, a despicable deed in the eyes of God. He said, for David's sin, God said he would receive turmoil in his life. The sword would never depart from his house, that there would be, as a consequence, ongoing conflict for him, even within his own family. And that someone would even steal his wives. David repented, God forgave him, but what God was saying was he wouldn't shield him from the fallout of his actions. And since then, I mean, if you've been with us, you've seen that his family has been falling apart in every single way that you can imagine. Brother raping sister, brother murdering brother, brother wanting to take over the kingdom from his father. So now here we are in 2 Samuel 16. And what's happening right now is Absalom, David's eldest surviving son, has staged a coup. He's popular. He's strong. A lot of people are on his side. And David is now fleeing the palace before his own son, right, think about that, his own son arrives to take it by force. And it almost seems like we're back at square one. As Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. It's almost like the Saul thing is happening all over again, except this time it's worse. It's his own son. And what we're going to see today is that when it rains, sometimes it pours. Because listen to this, David wrote Psalm 3. So David wrote a lot of the Psalms, but he wrote Psalm 3 specifically about this time in his life when he had to run away from his own son, Absalom. And do you want to hear how it starts? Listen to this. If you want a glimpse into David's headspace, hear this. Psalm 3, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. His problem isn't just Absalom. 
This problem is all these people who are against him from every single which way. It's not just Absalom, one person that David has to worry about. And what we see in this chapter is different people coming out of the woodwork who do not have David's best interest in mind. Let's put that mildly. In fact, what we see in this chapter is a sampler of some of the worst kinds of people problems. And maybe your problem, hopefully your problems are a little bit milder than this. Hopefully your son isn't trying to kill you or anything like that. But there's a lot that we can see here. And really the question that David has in Psalm 3 is the question I think a lot of us have. Okay, we have these problems. These people, they don't like us. We have this conflict in a relationship. Is there salvation in God from this? Let's get into it. We'll look at this chapter in three parts as we do. Three acts, each centered on kind of a different kind of problem. The first one, the first one, first point, the hearsay, the hearsay, which is about the problem of people talking about stuff. Look at verse one. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a 100 bunches of raisins, a 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Okay, so you got to kind of picture this. It might be hard if you don't really know what Israel or Jerusalem looks like. But there's the city of Jerusalem. It's a city on a hill. And then outside, there's actually like a mount that's covered in olive trees, and they call it the Mount of Olives. Kind of makes sense. David, as he fled away from the city, he's going up the mount, and he had actually crested over the top of the mount. That's where he met his friend Hushai. And now he's leaving the city. He's going down the other side. And who is there to meet him but a blast from the past, this guy named Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth. And, you know, you're forgiven if you're like Mephibosheth. I have no idea who this is. Have we ever even learned about this? Let me bring you up to speed, okay? A few chapters back. It's been a few months now. Uh, but what happened? Okay, so let me backtrack even more. David's best friend when he was younger was Saul's son, Jonathan. Okay, so they're best friends. It's a little awkward because his worst enemy is Saul. His best friend is Jonathan, his son, and they are close. Now, the sad thing was Saul and Jonathan were both killed in the same battle. So there's this joy and this sadness. Now David is king. He can go back home. But then his best friend is dead and gone. And then David, so he becomes king. And he misses Jonathan, and he wants to see if there was anyone of Jonathan's family, anyone of his household that was still alive, anyone that maybe he could show kindness to, just as kind of a way to honor his best friend who had passed away. And he, found, he finds out, lo and behold, there is one person. He has, there's one son who is left, who wasn't killed in battle. It's this guy named Mephibosheth. He is Jonathan's son who was crippled in his legs and couldn't walk. That's why he wasn't fighting in the battle. We read about this in 2 Samuel 9. But David, he calls Mephibosheth to the palace, right? He shows him extraordinary kindness. He says, for the sake of Jonathan, even though this is Saul's grandson, he says, for the sake of Jonathan, I want to do whatever I can to. He gives this kid or this guy, I don't know how old he is, but he gives this young man, he gives him all of Saul's previous property, and he also invites him to sit at his table and eat. So even though he's kind of an enemy, in some ways, David brings him in as a friend, even as almost a son, to sit at the royal table with the family. Extraordinary kindness, like I said. And Ziba is Mephibosheth's servant. 
So picture this. David is fleeing with his family, with some of his servants from the palace. There's hundreds of people. They don't even really know where they're going. It's not like they had time to pack a lot. And then who is there to meet them but Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth, the guy that he had shown extraordinary kindness to in the past with all this stuff, hundreds of loaves of bread, all of this fruit, a skin of wine. I mean, this isn't the family value meal. This is a lot of stuff. This is a feast. And the question is, right away, is this Mephibosheth paying back good for good? Right? Kindness for kindness. Right? Blessing for blessing. Is that presumptuous? Is it something else? So David, he's not totally sure. I mean, he's blown away by what he sees, but he wants to ask, verse 2, and the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And he doesn't say, oh, mine. He wants to know what this is. Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Ziba makes it clear, these are for you. Whatever we can do to help, this is for you. And what a blessing, right? People are turning against David left and right. He's running away. But here it seems like this is an oasis of loyal love in a desert of desertion. But then verse 3, listen to this. I mean, if you know the backstory, think about how David would have taken this. And the king said, and where is your master's son? I mean, he's looking around. Where's Mephibosheth? Let me thank him, right? I mean, this is awesome. You know, we're, we're close. Ziba said to the king, look at the text, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. What is Ziba saying? He's saying, Mephibosheth, he's not here because he's not with you. Okay, I hate to break it to you about that. It's kind of sad, but basically he's not on your side. He saw this as an opportunity to gain back power as the heir of the house of Saul. He's turned against you. All you've done for him, David, it doesn't matter pretty much. I mean, think about how that must feel. Think about how that must feel. Kind of reminds me of one of these old Aesop fables that I like to talk about all the time. But there's an old fable called the farmer and the viper. And basically what happens is a farmer is out in the winter and he sees on the ground this poisonous, this venomous snake that is really cold. And because they're cold-blooded and stuff, little free science lesson for you guys, it can't move, right? It can't move. It's too cold. It's almost frozen. So the farmer feels bad and he picks it up out of pity and compassion. He carries it close to his chest in his arms and the viper starts to warm up. And the second that the viper can move again, guess what the viper does? It bites the farmer. So now the farmer got bit by this venomous snake. He's like dying. And for his act of compassion, his kindness, he realizes that all he got in return was a fatal snake bite. Kind of a downer of a story. But the point of the lesson is that's how it is sometimes. That's the point of the fable. Sometimes kindness is not going to be returned for kindness. Sometimes you're going to be nice to someone and they're going to be mean to you. Sometimes people repay evil for good. And don't show, don't raise your hand. I'm just doing this for rhetoric purposes. But has this ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you? I mean, have you ever done something nice for someone and they just spit it in your face? You reached out to someone a lot only to hear that they found your efforts annoying. You poured your heart into serving someone. Maybe you spent hours cooking a meal and then they said, I don't like it. Maybe you gave a gift and they returned it and they Instagrammed it so you saw. 
It feels, it didn't happen to me. It feels unfair. It feels particularly unjust. It just feels wrong. And for David, I mean, you got to understand, this is another emotional blow in a day filled with grief. I mean, his own son is against him, and now this guy that he has treated like a son apparently is also against him. So verse 4, then the king said to Ziba, and he's running away, but he says to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Whatever I gave to Mephibosheth, you should have it. Right? It's a, it's a way to show thanks, right? Thank you for at least bringing this to me. And that's that, right? It's sad, but I mean, at least Ziba gets some stuff in return. That's that. Except, is it? Now, there's a reason why I call this point the hearsay as opposed to the ungrateful crippled guy or something like that. It's called the hearsay because all we've heard is what Ziba said. And if you read ahead at all, you already know that there are two sides to this story. I know some, some of you have read this whole book. Later on, in just a few chapters, David meets Mephibosheth again. And he says that this is not what happened at all. He says that since he cannot walk, he couldn't go to meet David on his own. And Ziba actually just took off without him, without helping him. And he went out and he lied so that he, Ziba, could gain favor with David. He threw Mephibosheth under the bus. And when you think about it, even here, if you just spend some time reading these first four verses, Ziba's story does not make a lot of sense. I mean, think about it. Why would Mephibosheth think, even for a second, that Absalom, who is David's son, who wants power for himself, would somehow want to give the kingdom of Israel to Mephibosheth, this guy he barely knows? Why would he do that? And maybe you think, okay, well, maybe it's not that. Maybe he thinks that in the confusion of kind of a civil war, he'll be able to kind of get his own people, the, the people of Israel who followed Saul to follow him. But even still, if that's the case, why would he stay in Jerusalem where Absalom is coming? This is the center of Absalom's power. And does Absalom seem like the kind of guy who's going to treat Saul supporters or David supporters kindly? No. I mean, if you know him at all, you know this guy is dangerous and unhinged. It doesn't make sense. And then what about this? If Ziba truly cared about David, why isn't he going with him? Everyone who actually was David's friend tried to go with him. Do you remember the priest, Hushai, the archite, even though he was an older guy? Everyone's trying to go with David. Ziba's like, okay, well, I'll just stay here. I mean, if he's someone who's so loyal to David, calling him his lord and king, why would he wait around for Absalom to show up? Think he's going to be fighting for David's side against Absalom? I don't think so. See, here's what's happening. Ziba is manipulating the situation. He's taking advantage of the fact that Mephibosheth can't get around without him. He's taking advantage of the fact that David doesn't have time to figure out the story. He's on the run. He's desperate. He's taking advantage of the fact that once David leaves, there's nothing really even tying him to David. There's no evidence. So he can be on David's good side in case David comes back, but he also can deny that he's on David's good side and welcome Absalom in. It's a win-win. He's playing both sides. He's trying to get ahead. And if he has to you know, throw Mephibosheth under the bus? If he has to ruin that beautiful relationship that they have built together between Mephibosheth and David, if he has to stain the legacy of David and Jonathan's friendship, so be it. And so David takes back everything he gave Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake, or rather he gives it to Ziba. And most commentators here, 
that I read, they point out that David doesn't give Mephibosheth a fair shake here. He makes a snap judgment based on hearsay. And what he heard turns out to be false information. But I think we need to step back and realize that David doesn't have a lot of time to dig deep into the story. He's literally on the run for his life. So maybe he makes the wrong decision, and he'll see that later. But here's a question for us. Do we? Do we? See, this is an interesting passage because we, the readers, we're not being chased by Absalom. We, the readers, we're not necessarily in a rush. We, the readers, can see more than what David could see at this point. And we can learn a lesson here that David won't learn for a couple of chapters. You shouldn't make rash decisions based on hearsay. Okay? Like, you will be excused. If your son, your murderous son, is coming to kill you today, then it's fine. Okay, make a rash decision, and there's grace for that. But unless you're literally on the run for your life, you should probably try to find out what's true. What does the book of Proverbs say? Proverbs 18:17. the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. It's super easy to be swayed by the first person that you talk to, is it not? How many relationships, though, get messed up because you just heard one side of the story? I mean, did you hear what this person did or what they said or what they're like? This is what they're really like. And then you get totally swayed to this person's side, and then it colors everything about how you see the other person. Or how many times have we fallen into the trap of immediately taking sides in a conflict when someone is looking for an objective opinion. Oh my goodness, are you serious? He did what? Well, I'll never, ever forgive him for that. Try to find out what actually happened before you jump to conclusions. Learn from what's going on here. Sometimes people have agendas, and Ziba definitely does. People have agendas. And you know what the truth is? We all do. See, I think this point kind of takes us in a direction that we didn't think it was going to go. Like, it does feel bad when people are ungrateful to us. It is messed up when people have agendas and they use us to get ahead. But if we're honest, we can actually be a lot more like Ziba here than we might think. Because don't we sometimes tell our side of the story to put ourselves in the best possible light? Or have you ever thrown someone else under the bus to make yourself look better? The essence of what Ziba is doing is manipulating the optics of a situation for his own personal gain. And that's something that I think we all struggle with in different ways. I mean, that's the reason, there's a reason why we talk about looking out for number one. That's our default. I mean, has someone ever talked to you about something? You're like, well, I wasn't really part of that. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, there was this like eighth grade bully and he was not that good at basketball. So foolishly, me and my friend were kind of uh, making fun of his basketball skills. Um, and then when he got mad, he heard about it. He said he was going to beat us up. And uh, I said, well, it wasn't really, it wasn't really me. I was like, I was just there. But I mean, that just goes to show that in the moment when we're pressed, a lot of times we do look out for number one. And if the other guy gets hurt, so be it. And he didn't get beat up. It's okay. But I heard one guy talking about this very passage, and he said he likes to tell people that he's praying for them. He said he realizes that he loves to just say it, texting, writing, uh, email, I'm praying for you. And then he thought to himself when he was studying Ziba, 
He was like, why don't I just pray and not say it? Why do I always have to tell them that I'm doing it? And he realized for himself that he just loved when people thought of him as like a prayer warrior, as a caring person. Because people always be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. And he just got in this habit of building his own reputation up. And he had to check himself. Beware the zebras in the world, but maybe most of all, beware the zeba in you. I think that's the first lesson. Now second, second, the hater. Okay, the hearsay is with Zeba, but now we get really into it, the hater, which demonstrates for us a proper response to being disliked. See, sometimes people just don't like you, and they can't keep it to themselves for some reason. They got to tell you. Verse 5, when David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Now, picture the scene again. Hundreds of people, men, women, children, servants, warriors, the mighty men, and of course, David himself. And then this guy, lone guy, Shimei, Saul's relative, shows up and he just starts basically cussing them out. He sees that David is on the run, and he decides to just unload and say everything that he really thinks about David. Now, I don't know. I mean, how many of you have ever been, like, cussed out or insulted or someone, you know, yelled at you? Does it feel good? Not exactly. It's not my favorite thing in the world. It kind of ruins my day. Um, I remember I was back in L.A. Um, when I used to live in L.A. And someone was talking about how he had moved there. Okay, so he was from like Tennessee or something. He was from the South. He had moved to LA, quite a culture shock. And he would drive on the freeway and he said people would always have like road rage at him. They would yell at him. They would cuss at him. They would like flip him off. They give him the middle finger. And he said, you know, his kids would be in the car and it was like terrible and it was so frustrating and it just made him feel bad all the time. And so one day he said some guy was like super mad at him. And I don't know whose fault it was or anything, but some guy was super mad at him and he rolled down the window and he just like stuck out his, his hand. I'm not going to do it, but he just stuck out his hand and he stuck out his middle finger. And this guy, you know, the person who was talking about it, he said he just like lost it, like something broke in his mind. And uh, not that he got angry. It's more like he went crazy. So he was like, oh, are you saying I'm number one? He's like, I'm number one. He's like yelling out the window, I'm number one. And the guy, other guy was like, okay, this guy's weirdo. So he drove away. Um, but he kind of just like broke in his mind in that moment. I'm number one. They say sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. But the truth is words really do affect us. That guy's a perfect example. He just cannot take the insults anymore. Now, okay, maybe I'd rather get yelled at or flipped off and get my legs broken. But it's not either or. Words can sting, they can hurt. In fact, the truth is, sometimes it's things people have said to us that stick with us way longer than our injuries take to heal. It could even be something a stranger said, some rando made fun of you on the street, but it just stuck with you. It says that Shimei cursed continually. It's relentless. And look at verse 7. If you want to look at what he actually says, and Shimei said, as he cursed, he said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son's Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. And what he says is pretty 
rough. I mean, he's yelling at David to get out as he's like fleeing and crying. He calls him a worthless man, which in terms of like the Old Testament, in terms of evaluating someone's character, especially someone who's trying to live for God, it's pretty much the worst thing that you could say. I mean, the worst, uh, worthless men that we've seen already in this, in these books are people like Eli's sons. Uh, they were priests who abused their power. They're like sleeping with the people who are coming to worship. They were terrible, awful people. Nabal, the selfish, wicked fool that David encountered a long time ago, he was a worthless man. And Shimei is saying it's all David's fault because he's a worthless man. You're getting what you deserve. I mean, his kids are having to hear this. His servants, his friends are having to hear this. He's saying you never deserve to be king. Your character is trash. Now, here's the thing. It's kind of true. I think that's why it hurts so bad. Look at the text. He calls him a man of blood. Is David a man of blood? Well, kind of. Yeah. He killed Uriah, and before that, he killed other people too. In fact, the reason why God didn't have him build the temple is because, quote-unquote, First Chronicles 28.3, David says, But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. David shed blood in war. He's murdered somebody. David kind of is a man of blood. He also is kind of a worthless man. It seems pretty harsh. And then when you think about it from a certain point of view, I mean, what did he do? He committed adultery with the wife of one of his most loyal servants. He had that servant killed off. I mean, this is one of the worst single things a man of God, quote unquote, has ever done, at least recorded in scripture. So in a sense, in a sense, think about this. Shimei's not just spitting vitriol. He's spitting facts. And what he's saying has a lot of truth in it. Sure, his reasoning might be wrong. This is not to avenge Saul. Okay, Saul blew his chance already. Absalom is not God's choice for a king either. But make no mistake that Absalom is doing this is all part of the plan of God. This evil that is happening, at the very least, is what David deserved. So look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. I mean, this guy, okay, Abishai is sick of it. Now, who is Abishai? He's a son of Zeruiah. Remember, Zeruiah is David's sister. And Zeruiah's sons, Joab, Abishai, and there's another son who died earlier, they're kind of military leaders in David's army. Joab is actually the general of the army. So Abishai, Joab's brother, he's a man of blood too. And he's like, you know what? I'm sick of this. Let me just go kill this guy. Let me kill this dead dog, actually. And in those days, like when we think of dogs, we think of like our favorite child in the family. But back then, dogs weren't domestic pets. Dogs were kind of like roaming the street kind of animals. Think more hyenas. Think more like rats even. And then The Jewish people, I mean, dead bodies were unclean. So a dead dog was one of the most disgusting things you could think of. He's like, let me just kill this dead dog. And this is the temptation, isn't it? See, when someone says things that you don't like, when someone someone says things that are hard to hear, says things that are mean, our temptation is to want to just end it. Or even more, to fight fire with fire. You curse me, I'm going to curse you back. You hate on me now, I hate you. And we share our grievances with our friends and we inwardly hope that they say something like, want me to take care of it for you? Want me to go take off the head of that dead dog? Kind of messed up. I exaggerate a little to make a point, but I know how easy it is for me. And I'll just speak for myself and you can think about yourself. I know how easy it is for me when someone says something about me that hurts my feelings 
to get immediately defensive and then offensive. Defensive, like that's not true, I don't like that, to offensive. What about you? What about all of the things that's wrong with you? I think about all their flaws. When I'm reviled, I want to revile in return. Maybe it's only me, or maybe you can relate. What do you do when you're insulted? Just think about it. What do you do when people don't like you? I mean, could yourself in David's shoes, if you put yourself in his sandals or whatever, shoes, sandals, for a moment, and Abishai says, look, no problem. I'm just going to go over there, and I'm going to cut off his head. What would you say? How many of us would say, all right, go for it? All right, I've already sinned a lot in life. God is gracious. Just go for it. Look at verse 10. But the king said, but what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, Benjaminite, leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. Now, it might be hard to kind of wade through what he's saying, but what he's saying basically is, look, this is in God's hands. Now, did God verbally tell Shimei to do this? We don't know. Okay, probably not directly, but that's not what David is getting at. Not exactly. He's saying that he knows that God is in control, and obviously this is part of what God ordained to happen, part of God's plan in other words. And you can see, even in how he phrases it, if you catch it, he says, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? He's saying, look, Right, Absalom is seeking my life. David has thought about why this has happened. David is starting to understand more and more about himself. But what he's saying here is, if my own son wants to kill me, I mean, how much more reason would one of Saul's relatives want to kill me? He's saying, I get it. It makes sense. And what he's saying here is pretty much the least defensive thing you could possibly say in the face of an attack. It's interesting. You know, I brought up John MacArthur more than usual today. He's had a lot of critics, though. Like I said, he gets a lot of hate. And you might think, right, that he would get bitter over time about this, that this would be so difficult for him. I've seen a lot of celebrities, they rise and everyone loves them, but then everyone turns on them and hates on them, and then they just have a mental breakdown. It's too tough. But one time, years ago, John MacArthur was asked about this. Like, what do you think about, like, all your critics or all the people who are always, like, hating on you? This is what he said in an interview. He said, on the other hand, I decided a long time ago not to try to defend myself against criticism. If the truth were known, I can't defend myself at some points. I don't want to get in a situation where I'm trying to portray some kind of perfection or answer every critic. We all have weaknesses. I have errors in my theology. I don't know where they are. If I knew where they were, I would change them. I just don't know where they are, but I'm working on it. 25 years ago, I resolved to refuse to defend myself. I just try to do what I do and be faithful and let my life and ministry speak for itself instead of running around trying to answer every accusation and criticism that comes. I understand that they're out there. I don't look for them. If they come, I'll sometimes write a letter that will say, listen to this, I sometimes will write a letter that will say, thank you for causing me to examine my own heart. I appreciate what you said, and I want you to know that I took it seriously. Thank you. That's about it. You need to embrace those kind of things because those things keep you humble. Hear that again. You need to embrace those kind of things because those things keep you humble. 
If I didn't tell you John MacArthur said that, you might not even think it was him. Based on the caricature a lot of us have of him in our minds, he said, I'm not perfect. I have weaknesses. I know I'm wrong in some areas. I'm trying to learn and fix them. And when people criticize me, I take every opportunity to say thank you. I'm grateful. I take it seriously. They might be pointing out things in his life that he needs to see, that he might be blind to. No matter what their intent or how they say it, he tries to be thankful because it's one of God's ways to keep him humble. I mean, think about that. See, if you're like me and your first reaction to any kind of criticism or insult or someone just speaking against you is to get defensive and then offensive. Think about David and think about what John MacArthur was saying. See, the challenge is when people say these things against you, when they hate on you, when they dislike you and make it known, the challenge is can you look through how it feels in the moment to what might be true about what they said? Can you even see the bigger picture that maybe, maybe in the sovereign plan of God that he allowed this person to come into your life to do something that will work out for good? Can you embrace what's going on even? It sounds so counterintuitive, but can you embrace that though it doesn't feel good, that good can come out of it, that you can learn more about yourself, that you can receive a chance to grow in humility, that this is an opportunity to rest in the knowledge that God is in control? I mean, this is faith building. This is character building. See, if you can look through how things feel in the moment to what God might be doing, then you might be able to handle insults and criticism, etc., better. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 12, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what he's saying there is the, thing, the things that hurt are also the things that make him rely on God's strength even more. And this is where David goes, verse 12. It may be, this is what he tells his followers, this is what he tells Abishai, who wants to defend him. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. He entrusts himself to God. He's going to let God fight his battles. He can truly let it go. And I know sometimes we want to just hold on to it. We want to internalize it. We want to fight fire with fire. But understand there's no freedom in that. The freedom comes from being like David here or John MacArthur or the Apostle Paul. There's an example for us. In fact, there's a pastor that um, I've talked to over the years, an older pastor, and he's tried to give me advice many times. And one thing he always comes back to He says, look, in church, people aren't going to like you. People are going to complain and stuff. He said, never fight battles with people. Just let God fight your own battles. And I said, what happens if it's too late? He said, from now on, let God fight your battles. I always have to push back on this advice because I didn't take it in the past. He said, let God fight your battles. And then he said one time, way back in the day, he said he was at a member meeting and a guy stood up and just started like yelling, I mean, saying mean things about him and stuff. And he said that he was going to stand up and just say something super like, like sharp and targeted to this guy to just like destroy him in front of everyone in the church. But then he had a Bible in his lap and it was open to the book of Ephesians. And he just happened to see the verse that said, be angry and do not sin. And he was like, all right, I'm very angry, but I'm not going to sin. So he didn't say anything. 
And the guy just kept saying all these things, saying all these things, and the guy left the church. And he said it wasn't until years later, decades later, that this guy came back and apologized, and they were able to pray and work it out. But he said, just let God fight your battles. Things will work out. You don't need to defend yourself. God is working. And it's not just for pastors. You can trust that. You can trust that, that God is working. Even if the problems don't go away right away, God is working. Verse 13, look. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. So they can't even get away from this guy. This guy's going on a hike so he could keep cursing at them. Verse 14, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So they went all the way to the river Jordan, and this guy's just following them, hating on them the whole time. But the truth is, if you take the truth to heart, if you can entrust yourself to God, then even if you have a Shimei in your life, you can weather the storm. You don't have to worry about it. And I know that this isn't always going to be the case, but later on, actually, Solomon kills Shimei. So there's some poetic justice here. And last, uh, this leads to the final point, the shortest point, I promise. We'll finish this, the harm, the harm. The hearsay, the hater, the harm, which is about dealing with the real-world consequences of the actions of others. See, the thing is, Ziba and Mephibosheth, uh, whoever was right, it didn't really affect David that much in the moment, Okay. They weren't there to try to stick a knife in his back or anything like that. Shimei was annoying. It probably felt very hurtful emotionally to hear what he was saying. It was probably very convicting. He probably had a guilty conscience thinking about all of his own sins. And yet, I mean, in the big picture of things, Shimei wasn't really the main enemy that he was thinking about. It was Absalom. But now we come to the end of the passage, and we're reminded of the people who actually have the power to do major damage to David's life and his loved ones. It is Absalom. And his new counselor, Ahithophel, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. So Absalom, David's son, and their history is really bad. We've talked about this. Ahithophel is formerly one of David's advisors and was a friend to the king before, but he's a turncoat. And it's strange, he required no coercion from Absalom, as far as we know. There was no bribing. There was no promise of power. He's not the kind of guy who's power-hungry, trying to manipulate Absalom as like a puppet or anything like that. He seems to be content to just let Absalom rule. We have no idea why he changes his allegiance, except for one clue is given. There's only one possible reason that we're given for why he doesn't like David. It's because of who his family is. Do you remember? Ahithophel is... Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And grandparents here, you know that your kids you tolerate, but your grandkids you love, right? There's nothing more great than the love that a parent, a grandparent has for the grandkids. We never find out for certain, but it seems for Ahithophel, it really seems for Ahithophel, it's not business at all. It's truly personal. He's someone whose loved one has been hurt by David's personal sin. Keep this in mind as we see what happens here. Verse 16. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, I mean, can you imagine being known that way? David's friend came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Suspicious. Verse 18. And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his, and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. And all the men of Israel, uh, uh, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. 
Now, we'll get to Ahithophel in a second, but Hushai is David's friend. He was sent here by David to hopefully defeat the council of Ahithophel. Notice Hushai is very smart. He's on a covert mission, but he's also a man of integrity. He manages to trick Absalom without lying even once. He says, long live the king. He doesn't say what king he wants to live long. And then, of course, uh, Absalom is suspicious. He says, why are you not with your friend? Isn't David your friend? And he basically says, well, I'm going to serve whoever the Lord chose, who is David, not Absalom. And while Absalom thinks, okay, maybe it's me, okay, uh, uh, he thinks maybe it's me. Who does Hushai believe is the true king? It's David. And yes, he will serve Absalom officially, but that doesn't mean that he's sworn off allegiance to David. He never denies David once in this entire exchange. And this personal loyalty to David only serves as a stark contrast to Ahithophel's heel turn. See, in this last paragraph, what you're seeing here is a true friend and a true enemy. Someone who truly loves you and someone who truly hates you. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what should we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now David left 10 of his concubines to keep the palace while he was gone. In those days, concubines were basically wives, okay, with a slightly lower status in the household. They lived with their husband, I guess, or their man, They bore children. They were provided for. They had a relationship. It's just they were kind of lower in the pecking order in the household than the actual quote-unquote wife. There's more to it than that, but that's basically it. So they were kind of lower wives. So David leaves some of his lower wives there. Ahithophel, the first thing he tells Absalom to do is to sleep with all 10 of these concubines. And And in public. And the question is why? Some of you are thinking, why is this even in the Bible? Okay, why is this even going on? It's crazy, it's disturbing, it's weirdo. That's really the point. Okay, a conquering king in those days might take the harem of the deposed king for himself. Usually he would not sleep with them, but he would kind of take over the palace, take over everything. It was a symbol of conquest. In Israel, though, there were laws about sleeping with your father's wife and stuff like that. And you wouldn't even sleep with your own wife in the sight of everyone in a public location But the reason Absalom is doing this is exactly there in the text. It says, it'll make you a stench to your father. It's something that your dad will just hate. Something that will make him realize that you're not the same person, that you guys don't have a relationship anymore. Do something, Ahithophel is saying, that will remove the notion from his mind that you will ever, ever be reconciled. There's no going back. He's burning the ships. To put it mildly, Ahithophel and Absalom, they do not desire peace. This is real war. They're going to kill David if they can. And the truth is, some people, they just don't want peace. Now, what I said, right, like, examine yourself. That's important. Okay, examine yourself. Think about the truth of what people say about you, even if they're enemies, even if they don't like you. But then you might think, what if people actually want to hurt me in some way? And that's a reality in this life. People have bosses, maybe, who are out to get them. People have neighbors that really do want to, like, get them in trouble with the HOA or whatever it might be. And then as Christians, of course we have enemies. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
I think in Texas especially, we don't, we don't want to accept that. We want to just live in the majority and have everyone be Christian and have every, you know, government official want to enforce the Bible and all that. I think that that could be good. But persecution is a reality. It was in church history. It is in the world today. I remember I was talking to a missionary in China, and he was saying, just as an example, there's a guy he knows who has a job, a really good job, but he's a Christian, and he's been trying to kind of be a Christian in the under, underground church, and the government found out he was a Christian, and they said, if you keep going to this church, if we see any Christian activity in your life, then we're going to make sure you get fired from your job. And he was really scared because in a totalitarian state, if the government fires you, you're not, you can't just go to another company and get a job. Right? Like, how is he going to provide for his own life and his family? I mean, this is 2021. Okay, This is right now. The stakes are high. And when we think of that possibly happening here, I think it stresses us out. And the truth is, it could happen. I think more and more, because I have the internet, I see how Christians are thinking. And Christians are pretty scared that things are changing in America. I mean, maybe, I, I think most of you are Christian here, not everybody, but I think you guys kind of understand this. You're worried that things will change, the tide will turn, that people will make your life difficult for being a Christian. Sometimes it seems like we're powerless. Persecution sometimes feels inevitable. And I mean, if you look at verse 23 to kind of start closing this off, I mean, look at what it says for David. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel is like an undefeatable enemy. He's unassailable. He's the kind of guy that single-handedly will turn the war against you. And yet, even if we face stacked odds against us, understand that he who is for us is stronger than anyone who could be against us. And that's what we see throughout this text. It ends with a show of power from Ahithophel. And yet, underneath almost everything that happens, you can see that the hand of God is working in a powerful way. And this is part of David's faith. You remember Psalm 23? Our friend preached it a few months ago. We don't know when in David's life he wrote this. But this is what he said. He said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says, hear this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God doesn't promise us no enemies. But God will prepare a table for us. He will be with us. And he's done that in this text. In fact, if you look again and think again from a different perspective, Ziba, he has bad motives, obviously. And yet, he brings all this food that helps David out. God uses Ziba's opportunistic leanings to provide for David. And though Shimei attacked David's character, God still brought him to a place where he could refresh himself. And he even gave David a chance to lean into his faith, to trust in him. And here, even with Ahithophel and Absalom plotting the end of David's reign, whose presence is there? In the presence of David's enemies, who is there but Hushai, David's friend? And we'll close with this. We'll close with this. Sorry, I went a little long. On Black Tuesday... Going back to this, MacArthur was shot. And I was thinking about this this week because they're doing this podcast uh, about expository preaching. Grace is doing it. And they're kind of telling some of John MacArthur's story. And they did an episode on Black Tuesday. And I listened to it while I was riding my stationary bike. 
He said he never saw it coming. He said he even cried or he shed some tears. I was like, whoa, John MacArthur cried? Um, but it was so, per- I was like, is this a deep fake or something? But it was so personal, so unexpected. It's why he remembers it even to this day. I mean, I don't know what I'll remember when I'm 85, but he didn't know what to do. And I was listening to the podcast, and then I heard this familiar voice. They're interviewing the dean of the seminary, who was one of the elders at Grace at that time. And he was my old Hebrew professor, Ur Busenitz. And he said it was crazy. He said he didn't even know it was coming. He said no one told him that they were going to try to take down John MacArthur, because I guess they thought he was on John MacArthur's side. He said it was one of the most stressful, worst times at the church. They thought the church could actually maybe fall apart at that point. But he said, he said, all I told John was, I know this is hard, but it'll be okay. I'm here for you. And in the end, I was like, how did they even get out of this? How did they fix it? In the end, there was just some elders at the church, some other pastors who were willing to say, hey, I think this is wrong. Even if you have some legitimate grievances, this is not the way to do it. And they were able to hold the church together. They were there for John MacArthur to protect him personally and also to protect the church. And really, God protected the church and John through these friends that he had provided. And that's it. That's what I was thinking as I was listening to the podcast. I'm like, I'm going to change what I told Eric I was going to preach on, and I'm going to talk about this Black Tuesday thing, because that's, the, that's exactly it. With David, all these people are against him. It seems like the world is caving in, and yet he has Ittai, he has Abiathar, Zadok, Hushai. He has people with him, even when it feels like everyone is against him. And more than these people, what we see throughout the greatest trial of his life is that God even though David sinned against him, is with him every step of the way. David, even if all the human uh, friends around him, even if they had fallen away, he still had a friend who would never leave him nor forsake him. And the truth is, we have this friend too. This friend, he took on flesh. He stepped into our broken, conflict-filled world to be loved by some, but mostly to be hated. And when we read the New Testament, when we read the book of Romans, we see that we were actually were enemies, that we were the ones who reviled him. We were the ones who didn't like him. We were the ones who treated him badly. In fact, it was our sin that led to his death. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. I'm talking about Jesus, God in the flesh. And though he was perfect, Though he was holy, though when he looked at us, he saw our betrayal and our sin, even though we were enemies in his eyes by choice, while we were yet sinners, he died for us to make us who were his enemies his friends. And what a friend we have in Jesus. So as God walked through the valley of the shadow of death alongside David, whatever you're going through relationally, know this that the same God who sent Jesus Christ to die for you is with you wherever you go. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You can bet on that. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, God. We know what we deserve, and yet we know your grace, an amazing grace. And God, we know that the things that you bring into our lives are for our good. God, that you sharpen us, that you make us more like Christ. We know that Jesus has suffered already, that he knows what we go through in this life. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, whatever they're going through, I pray, God, that you would sustain them, that you would uphold them, that they would know the nearness of your presence. And I pray, God, that you would 
Get them through it wherever you lead them. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.